Hi, we're Eleanor and Carrie. We're the hosts of the Good Robot Podcast, and join us as we ask the experts: What is good technology? Is it even possible? And what does feminism have to bring to this conversation? If you want to learn more about today's topic, head over to our website, where we've got a full transcript of the episode and a specially curated reading list with work by or picked by our experts. But until then, sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Today, we're talking with Neda Tanasowski, professor and chair of feminist studies at UC Santa Cruz, about the relationship between technology, racial capitalism, and histories of gendered and racialized labor. We hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for being with us. Could you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about what you do and what brings you to the topic of feminism, race, gender, and technology. Thank you so much, Carrie and Eleanor. It's such a pleasure to to be here with both of you. I'm a professor of feminist studies and critical race and ethnic studies at the University of California at Santa Cruz. And throughout my career, my research has focused on the intersection of racial politics and political liberalism in the U.S. context. So my first book looked at um, humanitarianism and U.S. humanitarian wars. And part of that research did actually think about technology in the context of war technologies, um, and especially how in the early years, um, drones were actually marketed as a humanitarian technology. So the interest in thinking about um, political liberalism, race, and technology continued for me. And when I was finishing that book, I was living in the Bay Area. And living in the Bay Area, which of course is the capital of big tech companies, startups, and venture capital, um, but a place that also has the reputation for being exceptionally liberal in the U.S. context, it was really interesting to me to see how tech money was exacerbating inequalities. And in the years um, as uh, tech was really growing, um, there was so much displacement, um, the proliferation of um, homelessness that I witnessed, and really seeing how all of this wealth didn't actually extend to the majority of the Bay Area population. Um, and so at the same time, my good friend and colleague, um, Kalindi Bora, um, who is a professor of um, women, gender, sexuality studies at UC Davis and I began thinking more expansively than about how technology is political, even though many people think of technology sometimes as disconnected from the political realm. And we were interested in tracking how the politics of what we imagine are good technological futures are deeply influenced by histories of racial and gendered hierarchies. Uh, and then this research culminated in our book, Surrogate Humanity, Race Robots, and the Politics of Technological Futures. So that book was um, thinking through how technology, which gets thought about as bringing about revolutionary new possibilities, is tied to values that are about capitalist development that reiterate a fantasy that as machines and algorithms and AI take over dull, dirty, repetitive, and reproductive labor that had previously been performed by racialized and gendered populations, humans will now be free to be creative and do pleasurable work. But these technological futures are also very much racial fantasies. So, uh, so we were thinking about that in surrogate humanity. Our podcast is called The Good Robot, 
And so we want to develop some of those themes. And with this in mind, we'd like to ask you whether you think there can be good technology, or if that's just a fantasy of technoliberalism. Can ethical technology exist and flourish if what has been called racial capitalism is still part of how the tech industry operates? I want to start by saying I love the title of your podcast, The Good Robot. Um, and actually, one of the very first um, interviews that Professor Warren and I did for Surrogate Humanity was with the curator from um, MIT Museum's exhibit on the history of robotics. And this curator, uh, her name is Debbie Douglas. And so Debbie told us that part of her work there uh, at the MIT Museum was providing good PR for robots, good public relations, uh, because historically there's been a fear of robots. So we thought this was really interesting that robots and all tech need PR to make us think of them as good. And, um, and so um, it's interesting to think about how, in part, good technology is a question of marketing, right? Um, and in this instance, within racial capitalism, good technology is a product sold to consumers for improvement, betterment, um, efficiency. But then your question also makes me think on the other end of the spectrum, there are movements at work to ban certain types of technologies because they're inherently unethical, so one of the one of the things I'm thinking about here is the active campaign to ban sex robots, as well as the campaign to ban killer robots. So the campaign to ban sex robots, for example, talks about how these AI enhanced sex dolls perpetuate patriarchal relations, misogyny, and even pedophilia. And they have written about how sex robots turn women into um, what they call programmable property. But these kinds of approaches, I think, risk taking technologies as having an essence, a single function, causing a problem in and of themselves, rather than thinking about technologies in the context of their use. So technologies as relational. Um, and crucially, like other manifestations of carceral feminism, the proposed ban on sex robots tethers protectable womanhood to racializing discourse. So first, this is more implicit in the campaign, there's a kind of universalization of the category of woman and the fear of women writ large being treated as property that appropriates for unmarked or white womanhood, really the, the sexual history and racial history of chattel slavery in the Americas, colonization, imperialism. And then second, the campaign talks about um, patriarchal cultures, breathing pathologized desires and so it's really interesting to me how that campaign singles out Japan and China and Asian countries as the origin for sex robots. So, yeah, I think it's not very productive to think about technologies as either inherently good or bad or ethical or unethical, but rather we can think about the kinds of relations that technologies encourage, enable, and facilitate, and then to the kinds of relations that they might prevent or preclude or 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 make difficult. That's hugely fascinating. And it flows really nicely, actually, to the next question I wanted to ask you, which is around uh, what kinds of harm do you think results from the ways that we think about technology and specifically the kinds of relations that we have with technological objects? Yeah, so this question, actually, I've been contended with this question of harm 
and technology and technological relations, obviously, as all of us um, in the midst of a global pandemic, thinking about how uh, harm vis-a-vis technologically assailing relations has played out um, in this moment, when for some parts of the population, everything um, has become contactless, um, virtual, um, and then for others, right, they are actually enabling that virtual reality for those who are privileged enough to, to remain at home. So when I, when I lived in the Bay Area, I would drive across the, the Bay Bridge connecting Oakland and San Francisco, and there was a billboard that was so fascinating to me for Grubhub, um, which is an online food ordering platform and an app um, that provides delivery services that, that many of us are so familiar with now. And this billboard um, had a, a little robot on it, and it said, because self Delivering food, self-delivering food is still in beta, use Grubhub. So the company was investing in research on drone delivery and and, and self-driving cars, but actually Grubhub relies on this pool of low-paid available gig workers. And so we can think about how the Laboratory for Technological Futurity based in Silicon Valley startups paved the way for the technologist aspects of the pandemic. But rather than technology freeing the privileged and wealthy for more creative tasks, which it was sold as before, um, the techno revolution uh, now right presents this moment where it's delivering reprieve from risk. So in, in some ways, technology allows for risk-free life to be like a, a luxury good. And in you know certain Whole Foods in the U.S., now there are separate lines for Whole Foods shoppers, um, and it's you know it's really very visible that that self-driving cars are not the ones delivering the food, right? Um, and it's not robots picking from the shelves, right? It's people who are precarious and who have to expose themselves um, to risk. And at the same time, this virtual world for for another kind of worker has just expanded the scope of work, right? Zoom and other technological platforms um, have made us permanently available for work. And, and so really it's, it's sort of the dream of, of uh, techno capitalism, right? That every moment of our lives can now be accounted for and made um, productive in, in some ways. So, so those are some of the harms I've been reflecting on in this pandemic moment, um, hopefully soon to be post-pandemic moment. (laughs) Yes, we very much hope so. Another one of the harms that we're thinking about is to do with technology's taxonomical capabilities. So the way that it sorts and categorizes and how this plays into what you call the logics of differentiation. So we want to ask you about that and about why specifically you think people fail to recognize this. Yes. So um, in surrogate humanity, Professor Vore and I defined techno-liberalism as how difference is organized um, through technological management and use of the categories of race, gender, sexuality, and a fantasy of a technologically enabled post-racial future But recently, I do think there have been more and more news stories and documentaries and texts written about 
um, what some people have called racial bias within technology. And so I do think that is entering a more mainstream sort of discourse about technology. And the most often talked about example of this is uh, facial recognition software and how it's much less accurate in identifying black and brown faces. So, of course, the norm on which such software was trained are white male faces, right? So some people call this racial bias in AI. And I think uh, it's interesting. If the problem is bias, then it would imply that fixing or correcting the bias would be the solution, right? But in the instance of this well-known example, fixing the solution would mean that AI can more accurately recognize black and brown faces, um, which um, given the history of uneven um, police and other kinds of surveillance of uh, black and brown bodies, is this capability really a desired outcome? Correcting the technology or the algorithm, so to speak, might actually just make um, the product better at policing, at surveilling. So also, uh, if technologies aren't biased, are they neutral? And as I, as I said before, I think characterizing um, technologies as good or bad, but also as neutral or biased, reproduces some of the logics of techno-liberalism um, and its seeming goal of bettering technology for an ostensibly post-racial future. So again, I think that that it's important to think about the kinds of relations that technologies enable and encourage, and then also to think about how how we talk about technology in relation to various kinds of racial and gender difference, what we want to call that. Why is it so hard to fix the kinds of harms that you've identified? But also, why did these particular racialized and gendered ways of thinking about technology become so entrenched? I think this is a question about what is valued within capitalism, within racial capitalism, efficiency, productivity, but also convenience, speed, easy access to goods and services, um, my colleague from uh, Georgia Tech, Professor um, Nassim Pervin, and I have been researching um, home tech or technologies that are used in smart homes. And one service we're looking at is called uh, Cherry Home. And this is a home security system that uses a separate processor and advanced AI to see what's happening inside a house, map the room that it's in, recognize the people in the room. Um, tell a user what the people are doing, and then send notifications if something seems off or is wrong. So for instance, the system can alert the user if someone falls or cries. And so it's clearly intended for caretakers to monitor young children or older people. So on the one hand, this service has been called creepy, right? It's taking surveillance to a whole new level. But on the other hand, you know, this speaks to a lack of available or affordable caretakers, right? Who can afford a certain level of care? Who needs to rely on um, technology to look after loved ones? Although even that is a level of privilege, right? Because the system is expensive. Um, but the, it's it's these these technologies step into into the place of infrastructures that are no longer there, at least in the U.S. context, where social services have been, you know, completely um, gutted. So 
I think that the technologies are there to, and they're marketed right to help, but that precludes a conversation about, you know, social and health and financial sort of uh, safety nets and, and infrastructures. Absolutely. And that example of Cherry Home, I think, is so generative because, like you say, on the one hand, it poses so many tangible risks to people in terms of, you know, not just surveillance, but also the use of these kinds of technologies for intimate partner violence and domestic abuse. But also, on the other hand, like you say, it illuminates this kind of same problem of labor, right, that your work, I think, really excellently foregrounds. Uh, And that's what I wanted to ask you about next was uh, thinking about this relationship between technology and labor. So how do new and emerging technologies both illuminate but also reproduce uh, these gendered and these racialized histories of work. Sometimes things in the world of technology are complicated and need careful explaining. Sometimes they just need a little hard truth. I don't think anyone is going to buy a banana with crypto at any point in the foreseeable future. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, the host of Slate's What Next TBD your clear-eyed guide to technology, power, and the future. Friday and Sunday, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, this this question is really at the heart of what was driving the research for surrogate humanity, because so much of technological design and programming is based on assumptions about Um, What will make our work easier? What will eliminate the kind of work that is not considered to be innovative, creative, or rewarding? And I mentioned the example of self-driving cars earlier, um, but there are so many other examples that show the kind of work that is imagined to be fully replaceable by technology. And this is work that has historically been performed by the enslaved servants, immigrant populations, wives who didn't themselves have servants and and so on. And there was a quiz that the BBC put out some years back in 2015 called, um, Will a Robot Take Your Job? Um, There are many jobs on the list, um, but I I wasn't surprised when I looked up a university professor, I discovered that I was very unlikely to be replaced by a robot. But of course, jobs like administrative assistant or bus driver were categorized as highly likely to be replaced. And this imaginary of of replaceability of racialized and gendered workers is a lot older than we think of it. And it very much has to do with a history of um, wanting to um, secure a cheap labor force that doesn't rebel against the master or the boss. A book that I love is um, Curtis Mars's book, Farmworker Futurism, that talks about this. And he writes about how in the early 20th century, U.S. agribusiness fairs always celebrated the technology that they imagined would replace Mexican immigrant farm workers. But the book shows that rather than replacing these workers, automation furthered the need for de-skilled workers who would work alongside machinery. And also, of course, there's some kinds of work, manual labor, that cannot be automated. Certain kinds of picking cannot be fully automated. And of course, there's also, we can also think about, you know, personal uh, assistants like Siri and Alexa, and how these inherit uh, an imaginary of an ideal assistant based on gendered um, labor histories. 
and women who were in um, secretary and stenographic pools. And so it's not surprising that that there's sort of like a feminine deferential voice that we associate with that kind of personal assistant. So, so these are long histories that are shaping how not just how technology is imagined, but what the design is intended to do. One of the things that we really love about your work is that it draws on much-loved Black feminist scholars like Hortense Spillers, who mean a lot to us and what we do, because the premise of The Good Robot is that feminist and critical race theory, among other critical areas of scholarship, can help make AI less harmful. So we want to ask you specifically, because everyone has their own ideas about this, what does feminist and critical race scholarship mean to you? And how does it inform your work? Yeah, so my training is in in critical race and feminist studies rather than in science and technology studies. And so my starting point for thinking about science um, and technology is that science and technology have always been deeply connected with um, histories of racial and gendered hierarchy and oppression And so there are many ways to think about how critical race and feminist theory intersect with studies of technology, ranging from how technology targets racialized populations, you know, studies of predictive policing, studies of how technology targets migrants at um, borders, as I mentioned, facial recognition software, also studies of how, you know, digital platforms can enable activism But my interest in this question really has always been how ideas about technological progress reproduced racialized notions of who is fully human. And so um, those of us who come from a tradition of working in critical race theory know very well that the, the humanity is a sliding scale and people can um, become fully human but that humanity can also be taken away. And I think that um, some of what I was talking about earlier in relation to imaginaries of labor and who is replaceable speak to that question, right? Um, but I also think that um, we, can, we can look at drones, right? Drones are technologies that um, in some instances enable us to not talk about human beings being killed, but to rather think about certain racialized populations as targets or collateral damage. So that to me is is really one of the most interesting questions about technology um, because technology is decidedly not human. Another way to approach that question is to think about, you know, the the conversations around when when will technologies need rights? What will make technologies have consciousness, right, or, 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 or force us to give them rights? That's really interesting. And we're thinking about the human in technology and how human technology is. I come from a school of thought where I see humanity and technology is co-constituted. But um, it's really interesting to see how people develop that idea. And another thing that we really like about Surrogate Humanity, your book, which is co-authored with Kalindi Vora, is that you offer this provocation that there is no such thing as feminist AI. So 
what does this mean for us? You know, do you believe um, that feminist AI is impossible? And what do we do as a result? How can we move forward from here? So I think when we wrote that epilogue, um, there was a sort of conversation that we were, Kalindi and I were having back and forth about the desire for a, a feminist AI. And, and I think to me, the question is, what does it mean for something to be feminist? And then what is intelligence? And so I think that those two questions are really at the heart of what you're asking. Um, so there are many different approaches to what is a, a feminist version of AI or technology. Is, is a feminist AI one that is trained not to make sexist and racist uh, remarks that it has been trained on by, you know, users and, and trolls. Is it just to improve that? Is a feminist AI one that it's, that is programmed by a, a feminist programmer? Or can there be a feminist AI in a context where programming is uh, operating within a certain set of capitalist relations? So, so I, that, that's one question that I have. The other question is how intelligence is so connected to this post enlightenment figure of the fully human. And as, um, we wrote in our epilogue, intelligence has been considered something that is the purview of, um, sort of white educated elite Man, right. So initially, right, it was playing chess that was considered to be the, the height of what like an AI um, could do. So what would it mean to rethink intelligence in relation to what, what would it mean if we thought about intelligence as enacting another kind of relationality? You know, because I agree with you, technology and the human are co-constituted but these co-constitutions can have very different ends, right? And so do they reiterate and, and rehearse uh, value, uh, like the, what is valued as being kind of, in this instance, intelligent? Um, or do they enact a completely different kind of relation that can disrupt um, capitalist relations? So too much of what I've seen as a feminist approach to technology is just corrective. And I think that that doesn't go far enough. It was meant as a provocation. And, and so it was in a declarative mode. Uh, but I think that it's an important, I think it's an important provocation. Absolutely. I mean, I personally love this sort of, you know, very bold provocation that you end your book with. Thank you so much again for appearing on our podcast. It's really been delightful and sparked all kinds of thoughts and conversations that I want to follow up on. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed your questions and I really enjoyed speaking with you. What a wonderful podcast. This episode was made possible thanks to our generous funder, Christina Gould. It was written and produced by Dr. Eleanor Drage and Dr. Kerry Macrath and edited by Laura Zamulianita.